Mark Valdez is the founder and CEO of Eads Bridge Holdings, a holding company that partners with management teams to leverage best-in-class technology to deliver unfair advantages. In addition to his role at Eads Bridge, Mark has become a prolific technology investor and even spent several years as the chief of staff to legendary venture investor Mark Andreessen. Mark's technology focus is so interesting to me because it's so different from the typical SMB investor operator's mindset, and I'm excited to explore that topic in more depth today. Mark, welcome to the Circle of Confidence podcast, and thanks so much for your time. Thanks, guys. Pleasure to be here. Appreciate you having me on. So, Mark, you've had a really unique background um, starting in the tech world and coming into this kind of SMB service world, and I want to dig into like everything about both sides there. Um, mm-hmm. First off, uh, I would love to hear just kind of a general overview of your background um, as you see it, and then would like to talk about kind of what led you into the ETA or really the service world? Yeah, for sure. Um, definitely have a bit of an eclectic background. Um, and uh, in many ways, it's it's a story of, you know, better be lucky than good. Um, but uh, when opportunity knocks, you just try to answer the door, right? So um, I, uh, coming out of undergrad, I um, ended up uh, joining Stanford Management Company in early 2006. Um, hadn't spent more than a day in Northern California before, uh, moved out on a Sunday and start work on Monday. And 15 years later, I'm, I'm still in the Bay Area. Um, you know, it's just funny how these things work out. Um, but Sanford was a very traditional asset management role. Um, I was one of the first uh, guinea pigs in an analyst program that they were starting. And, um, and so it was a little bit of off-cycle recruiting. And a friend of mine had a brother who was an associate there. And um, they were looking for people and I raised my hand and, uh, and was fortunate that they, uh, they took me on. Um, and, uh, you know, it was a very traditional asset management role, as I said, and, um, you know, in my first two years, it was very much a generalist. And then the last year and a half was covering real estate and natural resources, um, which was, uh, coincided with 0809. So fascinating time to be covering both, both of those asset classes as they were going through, um, you know, some, some pretty dramatic uh, scenarios. And, um, you know, real estate gets a lot of the, uh, the focus during that period of time, but uh, oil dropped from something like $140 a barrel to $40 in, you know, a matter of months. And so our, our portfolio was uh, <laughs> seeing a lot of challenges on, on that side as well. But, you know, it was a great experience to be really close to, uh, to the heat of the fire, you know, close enough to where you felt it. But, but not so close to, you know, I had to worry about losing my job or, or something like that. Um, and, uh, and, and the role changed pretty dramatically during that time as well. You know, was, a lot of it was, um, you know, focusing on new managers and where to put dollars to work. And then, um, you know, going through, um, you know, those tough periods was a lot more about, you know, where are the ticking time bombs in the portfolio and, and how can we get a handle on, on the risk management side of things. Um, and so, you know, a great experience to have early in your career, right, to, to go through something, uh, you know, pretty dramatic like that. Um, and, you know, so I spent about three and a half years there in total, you know, did the CFA, all, all that kind of fun stuff. Um, but, um, you know, felt like I wanted to make a move into more of a direct investment role. And, you know, very much appreciated uh, the opportunity to sort of sit at that 30,000 foot perspective that Stanford's endowment gives you. And, the opportunity to meet with uh, great investors across all different asset classes, um, but ultimately felt like you know you were a step removed from where the real action was taking place, and uh, and so I wanted to make that jump, but of course this was 2009, so you know <laughs> easier said than done. Um, so it felt like business school was a good way to um, let the market recover, and um, and you know hopefully uh, identify an opportunity on the other side of that. Um, but was trying to give myself a leg up as much as possible. And uh, so I wanted to, to take on some sort of internship or, you know, get a foot in the door the summer before business school. And uh, our CEO of the endowment introduced me to Mark Andreessen and Ben Horowitz when they were first launching Andreessen Horowitz in, in summer of 09. Um, and, uh, you know, probably the worst time to be launching a brand new venture fund, <laughs> you know, looking at the returns from the previous decade and, um, you know, they, they uh, um, you know, just, you know, uh, you know, coming out of 09, the last place people wanted to put a lot of money to work was within venture capital. And um, so uh, ended up joining them for the summer. Um, and, you know, we we're just la- launching the firm and 
getting things off the ground and running. And I was buying folding tables for us to sit at and, you know, just getting the office set up and, uh, you know, it was wild. Um, you know, it was, it was very much a bare metal shop, um, a far cry from, from what it is today, um, but a lot of fun. And, um, and, you know, it was great exposure for me and again, better to be lucky than good. And, um, and, you know, didn't really quite understand what I was signing up for, but, uh, um, you know, uh, a tremendous learning experience. So went to uh, work, for, work for them, still uh, stayed on the path for business school and then ended up back in Dresden uh, after school, uh, working for Mark as his chief of staff. And, uh, and you know, did that for about two and a half years. And, and this kicked me down the, the venture career path, which I've been on for the last 10 years or so. Uh, before launching uh, East British Holdings. Pretty incredible uh, start to your career, like leading up to Eads Bridge Holdings. Really excited to hear about Eads Bridge Holdings. Um, I'm trying to think about if I want to dig into your experience with Mark right now, or, <laughs> or I, I think, I think actually I want to know, like you came from the venture world, which is, you know, super high reward, super high risk. Mm. Um, and it's a totally different mindset in that venture world than it is in this other kind of small business world. So what did you see um, when you were sitting in that world, in this other world that drew you to it and, and made you recognize an opportunity that you wanted to seize? Yeah. Yeah. Venture is a very unique beast, right? Um, it is unlike any other form of investing. And uh, in many ways, uh, I think you can make the argument that, that it's not investing. Um, that, that's probably a whole different uh, discussion. Um, but um, you, know, you deal with the fear of omission and not the fear of commission, right? And uh, that requires you to flip your entire mindset into how you evaluate opportunities. It's not about you know if I could lose money on this opportunity, but um, you know, if we win, how, how big of a winner could it be? Um, and, uh, and, you know, it takes time to sort of reframe your mind around that because, um, you know, anybody can point out the obvious, uh, flaws or, um, or, or issues with an early stage startup. Like that's not hard. You can poke holes in any of this stuff. The hard part is how do you recognize the strengths that will overcome the obvious weaknesses? And um, and that's really tough. Um, And and that requires, you know, a lot of pattern recognition that requires you to, um, you know, change your, your, your natural biases in many ways. And, um, and, uh, you know, really hone in on, the the key strengths of these businesses and a lot of times at the earliest stage that comes down to people right um you know it's 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 the entrepreneurs or you know the founding team that you're betting on um and uh and their ability to um you know plug the obvious holes um and uh and you know what i always like to look for uh, and what would get me really excited was when you have an entrepreneur who comes in and you know, one of the things that we spent a lot of time on at Andreessen and I, and I tried to carry forward, you know, during my time in venture was to spend, you know, the first 10, 15 minutes of a pitch meeting just on the entrepreneur and getting to understand their background, their history, what led them to this idea? Um, why, why are they, um, you know, putting their career on the line to, uh, to go build this company? And you find out some really extraordinary, um, you know, stories um, and, and motivations uh, behind a lot of these companies, and and those points where you get really excited is when you feel like you can't picture this entrepreneur doing anything else other than running this company, and it doesn't mean that you're guaranteed success, but you really feel confident that this is the type of person that's going to run through walls. Um, to build this company because they were put on earth to do this. And, uh, and so, you know, a lot of people will describe this as uh, founder market fit <laughs> or, or uh, founder product fit. And, uh, and I really think there's, there's something to that. Uh, and um, when you find that, that special match, um, you know, it can really be 
uh, you know, magical opportunity. But, you know, what, what sort of led me down to the path that I'm on now was, you know, I was very much an accident DC, as I described, I sort of fell backwards into this and, you know, recognized that what was happening within technology was profound. And the knowledge and the insight that came from being within that industry would, um, you know, would be valuable no matter which direction it took me. And, you know, again, with that Stanford management hat on, you know, thinking about the investment landscape from a 30,000 foot perspective, you start to say, you know, where are there interesting uh, risk return profiles that maybe are um, a little bit underappreciated? Um, you know, recognize that um, the tech trends were definitely not slowing down. And if anything, were accelerating. Um, there's obviously billions of dollars that are pouring into venture. Um, becoming harder and harder to play that game as everybody's dollars are green. So how can you ride the technology trends um, yet also create uh, a compelling value proposition uh, as well as um, a compelling risk return profile um, to, 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 to um uh, you know, take advantage of those of those opportunities. And, and so, you know, it was a lot of that kind of perspective that helped me build the thesis for EBH um, and, and feeling like you know, we could leverage the, the insights and, and the network that we have from the technology sector applied to lower middle market businesses that, you know, historically have not had CIOs or CTOs. Um, you know, when a lot of these founder-run businesses were started, Technology was not core to the business, nor did it need to be. Um, but, you know, to make the argument over the next 20 or 30 years, it probably has to be core. Uh, otherwise, you know, those companies, um, you know, might find themselves in a, in a tough position. So um, anyway, it was, a, it was sort of confluence of events that led you to say, you know, gosh, there's a, an interesting opportunity to take advantage of how much technology has matured apply it to these more traditional businesses that have their own unique advantages. And, and that match um, should provide for a really compelling um, you know, investment opportunity ultimately. I love it. Um, super, super interesting. How, uh, when you developed the thesis for Eads Bridge, what was kind of your next step? Like how did you determine the structure? What is the structure? Um, who did you partner with? Um, just kind of things like that, like setting up yeah. each bridge and, and what the focus was and what your initial steps were. Yeah. So, you know, as I started to hone in on the high level thesis, um, you know, I really just spent a bunch of time going out and talking to um, a lot of different uh, existing private equity funds. Um, my initial take was uh, maybe it just makes sense to draft off of the existing private equity funds. Um, they've all got portfolio companies and capital and execution capabilities, et cetera. And uh, that might be an easier path to go down. And, um, and you know, so I spent a lot of time talking to, to different firms and trying to get insight into how they thought about technology and, um, and you know, how, um, you know, we could bring something uh, unique to the table for them. And, you know, it was a funny process because I think, more often than not, people really bought into the idea that, yeah, technology is important and we should probably care about that. And no, that's not something we really focused on historically. Um, but the deeper I got into it, you know, it became clear that um, it was a little bit of a square peg and in, in round hole. And, and what I mean by that is, you know, I was talking to a buddy and he was, you know, at a private equity firm. He'd spent his whole career within private, private equity. And he said, you know, the model for us is really cut your flowers and water your weeds. And I was like, what do you mean by that? And uh, he's like, well, for us, like, we're going to sell our winners about as fast as possible. And the things that we hold on to our portfolio, you know, are the things that aren't working out as well. And so we're just kind of watering our weeds there. And hopefully, you know, we get rid of them at some point. And this really kind of blew me away. And I was like, you know, I guess at some level it makes sense, but but it's just so counter to how you think about investments in the venture space, right? Which is like in the venture world, you got winners. 
you double down on those things. You ride those horses as long as humanly possible, right? Because um, in that world, um, you know, it's not about fewer losses. It's about bigger winners. And in the private equity world, um, you know, you, you're not playing that that same risk return dynamic. Um, and if you can, you know, if you can sell those companies that are doing well, then you can, you know, return capital to LPs that makes LPs feel good. Then you go out, raise that next fund and, and you kind of keep that, 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 uh, that wheel turning. And, you know, it just, it, it was, you know, a bit crass, but it was also representative of, of kind of the broader playbook in private equity that is fine. Like there's nothing wrong with it, but I just felt like, gosh, if, if you're really going to take advantage of technology, have that be a core driver of returns, you need to be able to invest with a different time horizon in mind. And sure, we, you know, we want to capture low hanging fruit, just like anyone else, but the real opportunity is to take a much longer time horizon and think about, you know, where can you build data and informational advantages that, that build over time and, and really provide, you know, a competitive differentiation for that portfolio company. And, um, and that's just not the mindset for how those guys think about making money. And so, you know, the more time I spent on it, I said, you know, look, if I really, in order to capture this opportunity in the way that I think makes the most sense, I got to go build it from scratch. And we got to build a structure that is tightly intertwined with the strategy. Um, you know, they can't be um, separated. Uh, they have to be intertwined in a way to um, align the appropriate incentives for all stakeholders, um, not just the EBH management team, but our investors, the portfolio companies that we invest in, the people that we hire within those portfolio companies and within our team over time. And so, um, you know, I felt like we needed to build um, uh, a unique structure to, to complement that. And so that's what led us down the path to, to building a permanent capital holding company. Um, you know, we're not the first people to come up with that idea, but it's really the, you know, for us, what, what I do think is, is, is unique is how do we build a software defined holding company? Um, and what I mean by that is, yes, we want to help our portfolio companies drive their business forwards through technology and, and software. Um, but also, how do we build our, our own unique platform internally? Um, how, how do we, um, uh, you know, start to leverage um, software to become more efficient in our operations, um, to help our companies in, in more meaningful ways, um, provide us insights that we otherwise may not have had? And, and I think there becomes a lot more platform value within EBH, the holding company versus, um, you know, just a couple of smart guys running around making acquisitions in lower middle market. Um, you know, that's not particularly unique. Um, so I think it's the real platform opportunity that um, will stand out and, and be a big differentiator for us. Yeah. Um, I, I love the idea of a software defined holding company and, and um, developing technology as a core competency in your businesses. Um, what are some businesses or industries that you guys are focusing on? Um, and, and how do you see technology getting developed within those industries or, or businesses? Yeah. So at a high level, we're generalists. Um, and, uh, you know, there's particular reasons for that, right? I mean, the opportunity exists across every industry and all sizes of companies. Um, and so, you know, there, there's no area of the economy that technology is not going to touch in, in, a, in a meaningful way. Um, but we also recognize that, um, you know, we can't boil the ocean from a sourcing perspective. And so, you know, how do we be a little bit more targeted in our, our approach? Um, so, you know, we have developed some theses that um, we start to go deep in and see if we can kick up interesting opportunities. Um, thus far, we've been spending a lot of time in healthcare services, uh, in particular fertility. We've also been looking at waste management, as well as real estate transaction services, title, escrow, appraisal, things like that. And, you know, the commonalities amongst those industries is essentially that uh, there's a physical real world component to the business that can't be digitized. So the whole product or value um, chain can't be um, digitized end to end. 
and um, they tend to be fairly fragmented, but um, also historically underinvested from a technology perspective. And so, you know, tends to be um, some really interesting areas for us to, to get started in and improve out the model and, uh, and let that build over time. Um, and um, so, you know, th those are the areas that we've been focused on thus far. Um, you know, we'll continue to develop new theses as we go and, and we'll, you know, may drop out some uh, if we don't feel like, um, you know, we see the uh, appropriate risk return profile um, that, that we'd ideally like. And, um, and so, you know, it's a little bit of an iterative process for us, um, but uh, ultimately, um, you know, feel like, um, you know, what we ultimately want to achieve is that if we own the brand and the narrative around tech enablement, if, if, we, if we own that mind space, ideally over time, companies will come knocking on our door and saying, yes, that's the, the type of, of firm that I want. Uh, that's the partner we need to help drive our business forward. And that's the magic of where, uh, what happens in venture capital. Um, you know, what makes Sequoia and Andreessen and Benchmark and Greylock and all these firms so great is that the best entrepreneurs come knocking on their door. Um, doesn't mean you can be automatically successful, but you're fishing out of a better pond. And, um, you know, that dynamic won't be the same in lower middle market, to be sure. But it's, it goes to the mindset, how we think about how we build the firm. You know, we draw a very clear distinction in the minds of entrepreneurs between ourselves and, and traditional private equity. And we want to be very direct in saying, look, like if you just want to punch out at the highest price, great, go run an auction, get 10 bids and take the highest one. But if you want to think about not just preserving your the legacy of what you've built, but enhancing it and, and driving your business forward through technology, uh, and can continue to make sure that um, you're a market leader um, from now into the future. Well, great. You know we're the partner for you. And uh, and so you know ultimately what we'd like to have happen is is folks coming and knocking on our door. Um, that won't happen overnight. But um, again, it goes through this mindset of of how we think about building the firm. Mark, you just articulated a question, the answer to a question I've had for a lot of different permanent capital structures, which is what makes you different? And so I don't want to gloss over this. I think one of the other guests that we interviewed that I thought had a really good answer to this was Chris Fredericks, whose holding company is like a holding company that incorporates ESOPs. So employees get ownership. Um, and they're each transaction structured differently. But the idea is that, you know, let's just call it what it is like a Berkshire's employees and shareholders get to kind of benefit through that ownership structure. You know, this is more of a private version of ownership, but I like your answer as well in the sense that you, you just take a completely unique approach. So I want to dig into that at the, at the high level, at the holding company level, can we dig into like, what are you trying to accomplish by, you mentioned building, just building software at the holding company level. Like, what is it? What are you talking about? What, what does that mean uh, to to help the the portfolio companies? It's a great question, um, and um, you know, it gets into uh, you know. I guess what I would say is, um, if you start to think about business as a software system. And you you reframe your thinking around that, it becomes really interesting to consider what's possible, um, not just from a functional perspective, but also from a business model perspective. And so, what I think is still somewhat underappreciated in where we're in, in sort of the development of technology and where we're at today is just how powerful APIs are and, and will continue to be. And, you know, of course you've got companies like Twilio and Stripe, you know, Stripe's like a hundred billion dollar company. Twilio is like a $65 billion market cap company, something like that. Like, they're massive companies. And so they're getting a recognition for, um, you know, for the power of what they've built. 
but it goes beyond that, right? If you start to think about any modern sauce, excuse me, any modern SaaS system, you've got APIs, you've got ways to integrate and ways to now create a system amongst different functions, right? They're not siloed CRM and marketing automation tools and, um, and ERP systems. They now can interact and talk to each other and share data and, 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 and functionality. And now all of a sudden, your business can achieve things that in a much more fluid and automated fashion than they otherwise would have been able to do. And so if you start to think about where can you use these data integrations, these APIs to start to build capabilities, points of differentiation that other companies won't be able to do, it becomes really interesting. Right. And, and, it, and it applies to us as the holding company as well. You know, can we actually start to pull out data and insights from portfolio companies, putting them on a common platform that allows us to be um, more insightful and in, in helping them with certain aspects of their business or better capital allocators, you know, as we go and we have more companies over time. But um, you know, the business as a software system, uh, I think it, it's it's a little bit nebulous at times and, and it can be hard to kind of wrap your head around. But I think that is going to be the big opportunity over the next 10 years. And it's where we as a holding company can be particularly unique um, and differentiated. We're putting companies on a common platform. That doesn't mean everybody's got the same system or the same workflow or anything like that, but um, you start to build a greater sense for, um, uh, you start to build more of a data moat and, and insights that otherwise might be hard to, to get. Does that make sense? I'm not sure if I'm being no, totally Mark, Mark, it, it, it's starting to make sense for me. I, I mean, it definitely is nebulous. Uh, <laughs> and, I, and I'm just candidly like, it I maybe one that's not good for the podcast, but it's, uh, it's no, no, no. I mean, it's, it's interesting. <laughs> like, and I, and I know that you understand it. I want to understand it more deeply because um, it, it sounds important. Um, I think that maybe it'd be useful if we could walk through like case study of um, the differentiation between utilizing software to make the engine run smoother, like businesses are doing today with different uh, pieces of tech stack versus using technology in an integrated way um, to really build a competitive advantage and a moat. Um, I know that we've talked before and you kind of mentioned Domino's. I don't know if you want to talk about Domino's or, or a example of a business that you guys have done this for or thought about doing it with, but I think just a, a real example would be helpful to, to drive the point home. Yeah, there's, um, I was looking to see if I could pull it up, um, but this just came up because we were working on our, um, our latest newsletter um, that goes out every month, focusing on, um, you know, practical insights for SMBs around different aspects of technology. And one of the things that I included in the newsletter this month, and it just went out earlier today, is a link to Carvana's uh, Analyst Day presentation from 2018. And it's a fascinating case study into how to think about using software and data to push on the flywheel of your business and start to achieve something that in theory could have been done by anybody else, um, but wasn't. And, you know, of course they had the advantages of, of doing this from scratch and, um, you know, not have his, having, um, you know, legacy uh, challenges to deal with, but, um, the point is more around the fact that the playbook is available to anyone. 
the technology is mature. Um, in many cases, you don't need to build software from scratch. In, in many cases, it's about how do you leverage the off-the-shelf products and systems, um, you know, better than anyone else. How do you start to use APIs and, and data integrations to, um, uh, you know, scale efficiently and effectively? Um, and and I think, you know, that's. Um, if you start to think about like what the basic flywheel of a business is, how do you use software to push on the levers of the flywheel um, to make it churn faster? Um, you know, all of a sudden you've got um, something that can be, um, uh, you know, pretty compelling. And, and I think what a lot of times, like we talked about this in the newsletter too, where you find a lot of businesses feel like, you know, growing and scaling comes off the trade-off of lower quality service. And there's, you know, fascinating examples like Amazon, Costco, Carvana, where scale actually provides um, lower costs, um, better service, a better overall value proposition for customers. And, um, and, and again, I think it just requires a little bit of reframing your mindset around, um, you know, what it takes to, to build and scale these businesses. So, okay. Th this is going to make me sound, um, very amateur here. Um, are, are APIs just ways of connecting different technologies? Essentially. Yeah. You, you can think about it as, um, it stands API stands for application uh, programming interface. And so they're basically the connectors that sit between, uh, that allow you to share data across different systems. And so, um, like, I'll just give you a, an example of, of what we do. We use HubSpot for a lot of our um, marketing efforts. And um, HubSpot, when we have a meeting that gets booked through an email that we send out, HubSpot will send a Slack notification to the entire team saying meeting booked with XYZ company and this person um, and, and everybody is now aware of that. That's all done through APIs, right? And so when you, the, the power of APIs is, you know, obviously providing these points of connection, but if you actually start to think about how do you build logic on top of that as well? Um, and so you can deal with different um, scenarios or, um, you know, have different functionality based on different inputs, um, all of a sudden um, it becomes a, a really compelling um, uh, proposition. And, uh, and, and some of that, you know, can't be done without, uh, you know, a real software engineer, but more and more of this capability is being, uh, you know, made available to, um, uh, you know, folks in a, in a, reasonably straightforward fashion. Um, and so, you know, maybe you need to have an outsourced developer here or there, but you're not talking about building massive software engineering teams um, to build this stuff. Um, the tools are all there. Um, and a lot of it just becomes about uh, how do you apply the tools? Got it. Um, we can definitely cut this next piece if <laughs> if this isn't like a, a good example, but um, if, if you were to acquire, say, a really basic yard care business, um, that just services like a neighborhood and all they do is cut the grass. How would you think about you guys' technology playbook as you walk in to um, the new owner of that business and how you can use technology to build a deeper competitive advantage? Yeah, it always, it, it depends on each individual business. And what we've seen is even businesses within the same industry have different needs. Um, and a lot of this comes down to, you know, just the initial assessment. But the way we, we talk about it is, um, first and foremost, it's about uh, implementing your core systems. And um, that can mean something a little bit different for, you know, each company in each industry. But in general, it's um, sales and marketing, um, operations, customer service, um, back office, and, um, and making sure that you have um, modern software systems uh, within the core. 
Um, you might have existing systems there to date, but um, you really want to have things that are cloud-based. Um, and it's not just for a usability perspective, but they're also more secure, um, always up to date. And then, of course, have these opportunities for, for APIs and, and, and data integrations. Um, once you've got the core, uh, then it's about enabling your power users because, you know, software isn't magic. Um, you know, you put crap in, you know, expect crap out. Um, and so, you know, these systems are only good if people are actually using them and using them the way that they were meant to be um, uh, leveraged. And, um, you know, sometimes that will require um, new workflows, um, but a lot of it is just identifying those folks that are willing and able to be the power users for these systems, take ownership over them, um, you know, make sure they understand the capabilities and, um, and getting the most out of it. Once you've done that, then it's what we call finding the pain. Um, and, and these are more of the, the unique pain points that each uh, company has within their port, within their, within their operations. And, you know, this can mean something different for everyone, but it's, um, you know, it's pretty straightforward, you know, ask yourself the question of what's taking us too long, uh, what's hard to do, what's cumbersome, um, and, and, you know, can this be done through software? And more often than not, the answer is yes. Um, it's just about, you know, asking yourself the question and, and then going on that exploration mode. And so a lot of what we've done is started to um, build a database of products and services that uh, cut across industry and some that are very vertical specific, um, such that when we're having a conversation with the business owner and we start talking about the pain points, we say, hey, well, you, did you know about this opportunity or this company or this product? And, um, you know, here are the things that might help with that. And um, it can be very eye-opening for folks. And it's not that the information is not out there publicly. It is, but there is so much noise. There are so many companies being built. Um, there are so many marketing automation tools, for example, like how in the world can you as a business owner stay on top of the ever-changing landscape? It's nearly impossible, right? And, um, and you don't have a CIO or CTO, right? So it's nobody's job to think strategically about technology. So it's just not, it's not getting done. And, um, and again, it's no, no one's um, fault. It's just, uh, it's just not, you know, the core insight and expertise that they have. And so I think a lot of it for us is just how do we bring our knowledge and insight to the table for these business owners? When you go through that finding the pain exercise, you just mix and match based on where their needs are and, and what exists. And then our focus becomes much more around vendor selection, implementation, best practices, and, uh, you know, a little bit of that change management. And, and once you've done that, you can rinse and repeat that cycle as many times as you want. Um, but that's what then gives you the opportunity to start to think about your business in a broader software sense. Um, and that, that business as a, as a software system. Um, but you gotta have the, the basics in place first before you can get you know, anywhere further down the road on this. As I'm, I'm really interested in the implementation process. Generally speaking, how long do you budget to implement a new software system, like an overhaul of a like a CRM or some sort of like dispatch software if you're in the service industry? Like, how do, how much time do you budget? And then, what are the things that you're considering as you're going through the process of implementing it in the business to make sure it's 100% a success? Yeah, it's a great question and something we we talk about a lot because, you know, if you try to do too much too quickly, you're likely to have organ rejection. Right. Um, and so, you know, the first order of business for us is not walking into a portfolio company and saying, Hey, we're going to rip and replace your ERP system. It's just like, we, what? like, you know, people aren't ready for that. Um, and so, you know, a lot of it for us is like, you know, the way we talk about it is where can we identify um, you know, some of that real low hanging fruit, um, something that maybe won't even move the needle from an economic perspective on the business, but that will make somebody's job a heck of a lot easier. And, um, and if you do that, 
and you get people bought into, you know, how technology can make a difference um, and how it can be more approachable and not something that we have to, um, uh, uh, you know, not be afraid of, but like, you know, just be, be skeptical of, then, um, then that opens up the door to do more complex things, you know, further as you go. And again, because we have more of this indefinite time horizon with our investment thesis, you know, we're not on the clock to have to, um, you know, make some massive change and have that show up in the margins in, you know, 12 or 18 months, right? Um, and so, you know, I do think some of those projects, even a, a CRM uh, can be a little bit more complex um, and, and the implementation of it might be able to be done in a couple of weeks. Building a um, muscle memory around it and having it be a core part of your workflow you know, that can take more time and making sure that you've got the power users, you're, you're leveraging the software to its fullest extent possible. Um, you know, that, that's non-trivial and that will take time. Um, but part of that comes into then, you know, if we are able to validate some of these opportunities for folks early on in the process, they're willing to invest the time and the effort to make that happen and really show the difference. And, and the last step that, that I sort of skipped over in our, our uh, four steps of digital strategy is, is really around visualization. And sure, that can be something like Tableau or Looker and charts and graphs and stuff. But a lot of it really comes down to how do you ensure that your team has their finger on the pulse of the key performance indicators for the business at all times. And something that we've seen to be very effective is, is companies putting a monitor on the wall that in real time is showing um, you know, the KPIs of the business. And there's no excuse, right? Everybody should know exactly what's going on. And it starts to become part of the culture where people are really paying attention to this, really moving the, uh, moving the ball forward. And, um, and, and so these are sort of the, um, a little bit more of the, the culture characteristics that have to come into play with, with being, um, you know, a, a great tech enabled business um, beyond just buying SaaS products and, and plugging them in. I love that four-step process. Um, ho hope to use that in a, in a business that I acquire in the future. <laughs> well, uh, it just came out in our newsletter today. So uh, I'm, I'm going to subscribe to that. I'm, I'm excited yeah. about that. Um, it, in terms of you guys' tech stack, what, what, what are like the core products? I know, it, it, I, know, I know it depends based on like, you know, the industry that your businesses are in or, or if you're thinking like internally at EBH, um, but like, are, are there, is there a suite of products that you're like, we got to have this product. Um, we're always going to use this, et cetera. Yes, I, I would say um, in the way we think about it, like, so for a CRM, for instance, um, you know, salesforce.com is sort of the quintessential products. Um, a lot of companies use it, but that may not be the right system for everyone. Um and, and so part of what we want to be able to do is say, yes, you, you do need something to track your sales pipeline and funnel. Excel is probably not the right mechanism to do that. Um, but maybe Salesforce, uh, for whatever reason, is not the right product for you. Um, and, um, you know, but here are two or three other options. Um, some of them might be lighter weight. Some of them might require less data entry. Um, some of them might be more tightly integrated into your email, whatever it may be. Um, and, and implement the right system for that company at any particular time. I, I think it's a, there's a risk to being too overly prescriptive, right? Um, and again, each company has their own processes, their own workflows, um, their own culture, and it's best to try to work within that um, rather than trying to um, rip and replace all of that as well. Um, you know, happy to talk about, you know, some of the tech stack that we use for EBH. Itself. Yeah, I think that'd be really interesting. And, and uh, I know we're kind of coming up on time. I, I definitely want to talk a little bit about your experience with Mark at the end. And uh, you and I can go over if Ben has to drop. But yeah, I mean, I, I'd love to hear about, um, especially as you think about that kind of four-step process, 
at EBH internally, um, especially about like just what you guys are doing on a daily basis. Like what are y'all's pain points? How are you using technology to solve it? I think it's really fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's always evolving. Um, it's evolved over the last six months and will continue to evolve, you know, over the next number of years. Right. I mean, I think one of the important parts about this and something we do talk about in the newsletter as well is that businesses are complex adaptive. It's just uh, complex adaptive systems, right? You're constantly evolving with your environment, your customers, the economy, your employees, you know, et cetera. And, uh, and so you can't just implement, uh, you know, a digital strategy and say, ta-da, like we're done. Um, that's not how it works. Like the, the most effective strategies, the ones that continue to evolve uh, with the environment as well. Um, again, part of why um, some of these APIs and data integrations are so important is that uh, it helps with keeping this evolution, um, you know, moving forward. So for us, um, you know, a lot of what our activity comes into today is um, uh, when we operate fully remotely as a team. And so, you know, we want to stay coordinated. And, um, and one of the things that was really important to me and in, in sort of the ethos of the firm was that, um, you know, of course, we're, we're a pretty small team, so it's flat organization, but we can't have silos. Um, and, uh, you know, this is my deal or your deal, or this is my function, your function. You know, you know everybody's um, got a responsibility kind of across the board. Of course, you know, everybody's got more dedicated um, roles and responsibilities, but, you know, we all collectively need to be engaged with, with what's happening. And, um, and so, um, at the core of that for us is software systems. Um, and so we use um, Notion as sort of our primary, um, uh, you know, uh, I would say um, sort of the primary repository for data and collaboration. Um, we also use Slack for communication. Um, we're using HubSpot for um, uh, more of our marketing automation effort. And um, uh, G Suite for uh, email and, um, and and file sharing, and uh, Gusto for HR um, and uh, yeah HR management. Um, and what we're trying to do is ensure that all of those systems communicate with each other in the most effective way possible. Um, we use some other, you know, systems for, you know, looking up companies and things like that. But, but the core of what we're really built around our own internal workflows is um, Notion, um, Slack, and G Suite. Just out of curiosity, are you someone that, like, every time you do a recurring task, are thinking of how you can automate it? Pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> And we have a tech lead whose job is to essentially do that um, internally and then externally with, with portfolio companies as well. That was going to be one of my questions is based on your team setup is do, if you had a full-time CIO or someone that heads up implementation both internally and in the portfolio companies. And, and how does that work? Yeah. Um, so Anand Sharma is our VP of technology. Um, he's been in Silicon Valley for 15 years, uh, started his career at Google, um, was one of the first uh, 400 employees or so at, at Facebook, um, and then went on to, to Pinterest after that. And, and so he's one of these um, really unique people in that he's got um, a breadth of um, uh, insights kind of across the tech stack, um, but is also a high EQ person. <laughs> and so, you know, he's the type of guy I, I'd feel comfortable throwing into a company in West Texas and having him build uh, a rapport, um, you know, with, with the team and with individual contributors and management and, and helping drive, you know, uh, from within a portfolio company. And so, yeah, you know, his, his job is to, is to be, you know, helping us develop our technology playbooks um, uh, internally as well as externally and, uh, and always constantly pushing the ball forward as much as we can on that front. All right, Mark, I've, I've got to um, take this opportunity, um, given that you work so closely with Mark Andreessen, who's such a legend uh, in the VC space. Um, I just 
I have an open question here. Um, I would love to hear about just some interesting experiences you had working with Mark. I, I was listening to the uh, recent uh, Patrick O'Shaughnessy episode with Mark, and I was blown away by how fast Mark speaks. I had to literally put it on like half speed just to like comprehend. And I think I'm just like raised in Georgia, just like think too slowly. So um, yeah, <laughs> so just kind of wanted to give you the floor. Interesting experiences with Mark. Yeah. Um, you know, it was, uh, such a, an amazing experience, uh, to work, uh, you know, closely with Mark as I did for about two and a half years. And, um, it's, uh, an experience that I, I look back on, on fondly, you know, pretty much every single day, but, but you're absolutely right. Uh, Victor, I mean, it, it's, he thinks as fast as he talks as fast as he types. So when it's coming at you, it's coming at you fast. <laughs> and I probably have notebooks of just like scribbles of me trying to write notes as fast as, you know, he's saying things to me and, and just barely keeping up. Um, and so, uh, you know, it, it's, it's like you're constantly drinking from the fire hose, which um, was a challenge, but, but also, you know, a tremendous learning experience. And um, he, he just consumes more data, more information. Um, you know, he's constantly reading. It's, um, I, I tried as best I could to keep up with him, but it, but it was impossible. Um, you know, it's, uh, it's just incredible uh, how much he, you know, information he consumes. And, um, and, you know, I think one of the things that's really incredible about him is it's across the spectrum right? Yes. Technology is, is like his lifeblood. I mean, that's just, um, you know, what, what makes the world go around in many ways, but like, um, you know, you can have in-depth fun conversations with him around history and politics and economics and, uh, art and, uh, Seinfeld and like just everything. Um, it's, it's really incredible. And, um, and, uh, and, you know, it's, I just, I've never met anybody else uh, like him in, in that way. Um, but, you know, I think one of the things that I, I really took from, from working with, with Mark and Ben is that, um, you know, they really treated building Andreessen Horowitz like um, building uh, a product company. And, you know, I think, in many ways, maybe now that's more obvious than it was, you know, in 2009 when they first got started, but investment firms were kind of meant to be investment firms. And like, that's a different kind of business than like a product business. And their take was like, why? You know, that doesn't make any sense. Um, you know, our product is, is what we sell to the entrepreneurs, right? They're our customers. Um, you know, if it, we should take, uh, sales and marketing seriously. We should take brand building seriously. Uh, we should take customer service seriously. Um, all the things that any other product company would do just because your investment firm doesn't mean you get to forget like the basic principles of running a business. Right. Um, and, uh, and, you know, there's the most simple things. Um, you know, I remember when I was first starting there, and they had implemented what I think has become the now famous, you know, late fee for showing up to meetings. And, you know, it was $5 for every minute that you were late and to a meeting with an entrepreneur. It's like, well, I don't understand. Like, isn't it, don't you just show up to meetings on time? Like, that's kind of like a basic principle, right? Like, doesn't everybody do that? And it's like, well, turns out in venture, like that wasn't necessarily the case. Um, and, uh, you know, entrepreneurs are not always treated that well. And, you know, they decided that they were going to build the firm that they always wanted when they were entrepreneurs. And part of that was like, we're not going to waste entrepreneurs time because guess what? Like they're running businesses. Like they don't need to be jacking around with VCs, like wait, hanging out in, in the, uh, in, um, you know, in the, uh, in the waiting room. And so um, it's, uh, you know, again, it's, 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 in some levels, it's kind of basic stuff, but, um, but, you know, it really impressed upon me that, um, you know, you got to think, you know, fairly holistically about how you're building the business and who your customers are and value proposition. And um, that applies to investment firms, just like it does to any other type of company. Wow. It's incredible. And uh, makes a lot of sense, uh, kind of how you described what you're building with EBH and what's important to you guys. So it's, it's clear where the, uh, 
you know, where, where the ideas. <laughs> I'd like to think I picked up a few things along the way. Um, yeah. No, I, I by no means am, am Mark Andreessen, that's for sure. But, um, but you know, that it was, uh, it was a tremendous learning experience. And I feel like, you know, one of those things where you probably realize after the fact, how much you were picking up through osmosis and, uh, and uh, you know, re- really fortunate to have, have gotten to work for them. Super cool. Well, Mark, we have one last question uh, that we ask everyone on our show and uh, I didn't provide it to you in the notes, um, but it, it should, should come pretty naturally. It's <laughs> uh, um, what is doing business the right way mean to you? Yeah, it's a great question. And it's, you know, it's, um, I think it's a particular important one in the investment world. And, uh, and, you know, I've had unique experience of being on the LP side of the business as well as the GP side of the business. And um, particularly in 08, 09, when, um, you know, it was very clear uh, during that period of time who was being a great steward of your capital and, and who was not. And, you know, I, I remember sort of that memory sort of being burned in my image, uh, that image being sort of burned in my memory of, of saying like, if I ever get the opportunity, I'm, I'm gonna do this differently um, because, you know, it's a recognition that it's it's not your money, you're managing that money on behalf of, of somebody else, some other institution, you know, some family, some foundation, whatever it may be. And, and so, you know, I think a lot of what we, we tried to do in, in with creating our structure for Eads Bridge and something I've thought a lot about is, again, how, how do we create the right set of alignment for all stakeholders? Um, and, and if the goal is really on building the equity value of EBH itself, that aligns really well with, um, you know, our investors. And it's, uh, it's hard to get misaligned in that way. Um, you know, the, the traditional fund model, the way you build equity value at the firm level is by more funds, bigger funds, creating that fee income stream. And at a certain point, that's no longer in the best interest of your limited partners. Um, it may be the logical thing to do, um, but, but isn't really in the best interest uh, of your investors. Um, and so, you know, not that it's perfect, but I think by, you know, by saying we're going to be a company and not a fund, um, and our focus is going to be on building and growing that cash flow, which will, will produce equity value that in the long run will be valuable for everyone, uh, our investors, as well as the EBH team, um, you know, that, that can, that should hopefully create something that's truly special. Um, and, so, you know, I think a lot of it to me, it comes down to alignment and it's the famous quote of, you know, you uh, show me the incentives and, and I'll show you the outcome. Um, and and yeah. I think there's an opportunity in the investment world to rethink the models um, that we've built, um, the current construct, just because it's the way it's been done doesn't necessarily make it the right way. Um, and so, you know, how can we incentivize people to um, try to do things differently, um, create new models, um, create new incentive structures? Um, you know, two and 20 was, you know, a relic of, you know, some historical way of doing business. Like it works, but maybe there's another way. Um, and so for us, as much as anything else that we're trying to do from a technology perspective um, and, and sort of bridging that digital divide, a lot of what we're trying to do is also recreate uh, or create a new construct for an investment model that we think is aligned for all of our stakeholders as best we can. Well, Mark, that's a fantastic answer and a great way to wrap up the episode today. I just want to say thank you again for your time. Um, I think our listeners are going to really enjoy this. I I learned a ton and I know that they will as well. Yeah, really appreciate it, Mark. This is great. And wish you all the best of luck going forward. Thanks, gents. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. This is Benton here again. Thanks so much for listening to the Circle of Competence podcast. To find more episodes like this one, 
go to circleofcompetence.co. That's circleofcompetence.co to sign up for my weekly podcast emails as well as a monthly summary of links to blog posts and articles I liked most from the previous month. Finally, if you enjoyed the show, please leave us a rating on iTunes, which will help more people discover the work we are doing to explore the entrepreneurial investor's journey. Thanks again for listening.